I'm Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch Podcast. Welcome back. This week, I'm very, very excited to introduce our guest. Um, this is a subject, he, he works on a subject matter that I am very, very interested in myself. Um, and so it's, it's great to have him join us. Um, his name is John Metz. He is a board member and co-founder of a group called Athenae, which has been around for a couple of years. And what they do is they work on college campuses. This is a student-led organization that works on college campuses to sort of mitigate the influence of the Chinese Communist Party um, on college campuses, American college campuses. If you've been following this story of sort of um, Chinese gifts, as they say, to uh, American universities, you know that we're talking billions of dollars. Um, so this is a very, it's a little bit of an underground story. And so it's really, really heartening to hear that students have taken up this cause. Um, and so we're going to ask John why this was necessary, why his group was founded, um, what he hopes to accomplish with Athenae, uh, or the group, um, I think he's finished out his term as president. So what the group going forward intends to accomplish and what he sees happening from sort of the federal government and maybe even state governments and the university sort of um, industry, I guess, in general, and how they're uh, dealing with this this potentially malign influence from the Chinese Communist Party. John Metz, welcome to the Influence Watch podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, so thrilled you're here. Again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is a subject matter that I am absolutely fascinated by. So tell me about Athenae. Tell me what the sort of influence of the communist uh, communist Chinese um, government and party has, what that looks like on college campuses, and why you how this group got started and why it was necessary. Sure. Uh, so Athena was founded way back in May of 2020. Uh, I was a senior in college at the time. Uh, the other co-founders were also college students at the time. And we came from a variety of different political backgrounds. I was active in, in college Democrats myself. Another co-founder was heavily involved in college Republicans, but we you know, shared this view that the influence of the Chinese Communist Party on U.S. college campuses was corroding the values and the operations that made those universities great uh, and that allowed them to contribute in the way they have to uh, you know, the success of the U.S. as an open and very prosperous society. Uh, so, you know, at the time, we were fairly narrowly focused on one of the most visible aspects of that influence, which is Confucius Institutes. Uh, at the time, there were more than 81 of those open on U.S. college campuses. Uh, those numbers have fallen substantially, although I think there's an important caveat in noting that as a number of universities have relinquished their ties to Confucius Institutes, they've actually continued to retain their relationships with partner institutions in China, some of which actually, uh, you know, replicate some of the same um, you know, concerns you know, that we've had with Confucius Institutes, which in a nutshell, though they are outwardly similar to other foreign government funded entities that are designed to, uh, you know, cultivate knowledge of a foreign language, in this case, um, uh, Mandarin, primarily, you know, Chinese, um, and, uh, you know, enable sort of a cultural understanding. In reality, what they are is proxies of the Chinese government. Um, 
essentially U.S. universities signed agreements with uh, Hanban, which was the Chinese government entity that oversaw Confucius Institutes, uh, which gave them a substantial amount of money every year, um, but required them to effectively outsource Chinese language education, uh, including curricula, hiring decisions, uh, you know, staffing, textbooks, um, and other aspects of their operations to an entity that, again, is directly controlled by the Chinese government. Um, and I'll get in, in, in a little bit into exactly what the consequences of that were for students. Um, but this was really, you know, I think, one of the most visible ways uh, and the most indefensible ways in which universities had uh, allowed themselves, you know, in a, in a way to be bought. Um, so as of right now, there are about seven Confucius Institutes operating on U.S. university college campuses, although, uh, again, that number is... Uh, you know, it sh should come with an asterisk because a lot of universities that have, due to federal government pressure, uh, particularly since the federal government began to restrict certain Department of Defense funding in 2018 to universities that have Confucius Institutes, uh, you know, universities have begun to, to to close some of those, but still retain those ties. Um, but that progress that we've made as you know a, a student-driven bipartisan group, uh, you know, that, that's been able to make real inroads uh, with legislators at the state and federal level and to really shape the way young people are thinking about this issue, uh, it's kind of allowed us to to broaden our effort. And that effort, as of right now, and I think this is going to continue to be, case, be the case going forward, is, is focused on two kind of buckets. Um, one is, you know, money coming in from the Chinese government and its proxies to U.S. universities. Um, Confucius Institutes, like I said, are, are one of the most obvious examples of this. Um, but that also includes uh, foreign gifts and contracts um, to the tune, like you said, of billions of dollars, uh, many of which are either uh, not disclosed at all or are improperly disclosed or are disclosed in such a way that even though the public might have access to some basic information about the amount of money and the country of origin, you know, they might not actually know uh, what the source of that funding is. Um, so we're talking about uh, in excess since January 1st, 2018 of $2.2 .2 billion that have come to U.S. universities from entities in China and Hong Kong. That's according to our estimates. We think that is almost certainly an underestimate. You know, the Department of Education itself has said that um, there is this system, this, this systemic problem with universities underreporting the funding they're getting from entities in China um, and also failing to report crucial details about what that money is actually supporting. Uh, you know, whether it's it's involved in uh, sensitive research uh, in a way that might give donors or contracting entities in China access to uh, technology that, that's relevant to national security and that they might be able to transfer back to a, you know, a company in China uh, and to facilitate espionage in that way and tech transfer. Um, or whether it's having you know, significant implications for uh, curricula and for how universities operate. Uh, so that's one side of things is, is money coming in, inbound funds. Um, the other side of things is money going out from U.S. universities. Uh, you know, the, the, the sum total of, of U.S. university endowments uh, e, at the end of the last fiscal year was in excess of $800 billion. So for context, you know, I like to say that you know, to, to situate people that that's 
similar to the national wealth of the country of Chile or of Greece. So it's a substantial amount of money and uh, it's incredibly opaque. Um, you know, the, the, the letter that, we, we've, uh, that, that recently was sent by members of the House Ways and Means Committee uh, to UPenn uh, highlighted the fact that UPenn uh, is one of many universities in the U.S. that has actually acknowledged investments in companies that are sanctioned or listed by the U.S. university or by, by the U.S. government. Um, that is actually just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so public reporting of, of U.S. university investments uh, is extremely limited. Uh, when it comes to public investments, that is, you know, stock that universities hold or uh, investments in index funds or mutual funds um, that are publicly traded, um, there are some reporting requirements. Universities have to, uh, like any other institutional investment manager, you know, report funds, uh, you know, every, every quarter um, that are invested in, in, in public equities, um, over $100 million. Um, that is a very, very limited snapshot. And just through that snapshot, we can see that universities like uh, you know, Georgetown, which has, uh, as of the most recent filing with the SEC, uh, over a $9 million investment in Alibaba, which is one of the companies most complicit in the Chinese government's genocide of Uyghurs, um, like uh, Yale University, which as of last year had investments in uh, Vanguard's uh, Emerging Markets ETF, which has multiple holdings in companies that uh, are directly complicit in CCP human rights abuses, um, holdings in companies like BGI Genomics, uh, which has been accused of collecting genetic material from ethnic minorities, especially Uyghurs in China, uh, in violation of, of standard conventionally accepted medical ethics. Uh, companies like Inspur, which is recently sanctioned by the U.S. government, um, a number of companies that are on uh, either you know, the entity list, uh, which is one of the most well-known sanctions lists, um, the military end user list, um, and you know, a variety of other sanctions or you know, sanctions lists or other forms of, uh, of, of listing that the U.S. government has come up with to say, you know, these companies are bad news. Um, but actually those public investments, which again have, are subject to some limited disclosure rules, those really only show us a, a fairly small snapshot of the total investment picture uh, because private equity and venture capital, which is increasingly where universities are turning for significant returns in their endowments, um, are uh, subject to, to none of those same disclosure requirements. Um, so our concern is that it is not just that we know for a fact that universities have links through direct investments or through passive investments like mutual funds in companies that are, are fueling the CCP's human rights abuses, fueling the Chinese government's military buildup. Um, it's also that this increasingly large pot of money uh, in, in private investments uh, is you know, completely opaque. Uh, it's incredibly illiquid, meaning that in the event of you know, a geopolitical crisis, uh, that, that might uh, force companies to divest of those holdings. You know, think the uh, you know we, we, we think back to the example set uh, you know with the invasion of, of Ukraine uh, last February, where a number of U.S. investors that had uh, links to Russian firms uh, had to to ensure compliance basically dumped those investments overnight 
um, often at a huge loss, you know, 60% or more. Um, we're concerned that, that something similar could happen in the event of, you know, an invasion of Taiwan or another geopolitical crisis, uh, an increase in sanctions by the U.S. government, some of which might actually entail an investment blacklisting. Um, so these investments are, are opaque. Uh, so the public has virtually no information about where that money is going. Uh, they're illiquid, meaning that it's hard for universities and other institutional investors to get out of those investments quickly. Um, and most concerning, they're fueling the companies like the, you know, the, the, the you know, AI companies in China uh, that even if they're not on the U.S. government's radar now, uh, they're likely to become the next Alibaba, uh, the next SenseTime or Megvi. These are real examples of companies that are prominent tech-focused companies in China uh, that we know through a variety of open source documentation are directly involved in human rights abuses like the genocide of Uyghurs. Um, you know, SenseTime is, is a company that uh, actually advertised a service uh, for uh, you know, facial recognition uh, designed to identify Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities. And that was something that was selling to the Chinese government and to you know, provincial and, and municipal governments in China. Um, these companies are military contractors. Uh, so Alibaba in particular has billions of dollars in, in contracts with the Chinese government to develop military technology. So, you know, as we think about, you know, exactly why this, this money might be concerning, it's not just the amount, which feasibly could well be in the billions, um, and, and almost certainly is, um, but it's also the fact that it's fueling the growth of the Chinese military, of the Chinese government's surveillance state, uh, certainly in China and potentially here in the U.S., um, and that it's allowing these companies that are directly complicit in, in atrocities against ethnic minorities to, uh, you know, to rise. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is our focus. You know, we've had a tremendous amount of success in reaching young people on college campuses. And that, I think, is, is, is the most important aspect of what we do. Um, students often don't know exactly where uh, you know, where their university's money is going um, or where their universities are getting money from. Uh, but once students, whether they are college Democrats or college Republicans or somewhere in between or none of the above, uh, you know, once they learn that their universities, uh, including some of the most elite institutions in the country, are complicit in the CCP's rise, uh, they overwhelmingly reject that and they want to fight back. Um, so, you know, just recently, the latest example, students at the University of Memphis just a couple of weeks ago passed a resolution calling on their university to divest uh, of its uh, any, any potential holdings in companies complicit in the genocide of Uyghurs. Uh, students at a number of other public and private universities around the country have uh, passed similar resolutions. Uh, and actually, back in November of 2021, the Catholic University of America, in, in response to our pressure, became the first, hopefully, of, of many universities to agree to divest of holdings and companies complicit in these human rights abuses. So there's a lot of progress to make, uh, but this is something that students, when they're informed about these issues and when they're given the tools to you know, to advocate uh, for their universities to disentangle themselves from the CCP, uh, whether it's in the form of investments or gifts and contracts, um, 
you know, they, they, they care and, and they can win. That's so great to hear. Um, and because I think that right now there's a sort of, um, there's an idea uh, watching everything that's happening going on in the world right now that the younger generations don't care or that they might be complicit with some of these, um, you know, uh, malign, uh, the malign behavior of some of these um, authoritarian regimes like the CCP. Um, And a lot of that is tied into their use of apps like TikTok, which I want to talk about in just a second. But before we talk about that, um, I want to make it really clear uh, what you're doing here. Um, And this does wrap into the TikTok question, and it does wrap into the surveillance state that you mentioned, the sort of exporting of the surveillance state, the CCP surveillance state to American universities. There's a story that came out last year. You're quoted heavily in it. Um, about a pro-democracy Chinese student that was stalked um, at the at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston by another um, pro-CCP Chinese student, I believe, uh, who had threatened this student, um, threatened him with violence, things like that. Um, and in some of your statements uh, responding to that that story, um, you were interviewed in uh, the PIE News, the Pi Weekly, um, and you basically talk about how some of this influence of the C- the CCP's influence on American uh, college campuses, um, it's not just about shaping the views of American students. It's about keeping Chinese students in line. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And I think this is one of the number one things that I, I think it's important that young people and policymakers understand about where the momentum for financial disentanglement from the CCP is coming from is, is there's this gut reaction tendency to say, you know, how might this evolve into something that's, that's anti-Chinese and that's, that's harmful to Asian and especially Chinese students on college campuses. Um, but in reality, Chinese students studying on U.S. college campuses are first and foremost in the firing line for the CCP. Mm-hmm. Um, there are currently, there, there are about 300,000 Chinese students studying on U.S. college campuses right now. Um, so, you know, a significant number, China for a long time has been uh, the largest source of foreign students studying in the U.S. Um, and they, uh, you know, even when they're on U.S. soil, uh, are subject to many of the same forms of surveillance coercion and intimidation that they would be back home. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's as if they never left China. Um, so, you know, I've talked firsthand with students who, uh, you know, came to the U S and, uh, were, uh, you know, immediately, you know, that let's say they attend a, uh, a political event of some kind, uh, where a speaker is critical of the Chinese government. Um, that could be enough to get their family members a threatening phone call, uh, from Chinese state security uh, to tell them, you know, listen, your your child was um, in uh, you know sort of in, in the wrong circles, and uh, we are going to count on you to rein them in, uh, or there might be consequences for you, and that could involve uh, detention or worse. Yeah, um, and I think that's an important, a very important part of the work that that your group is doing because you know we get we get this idea that our our youth is being shaped by you know. Um, communist, uh, you know, 
um, governments and, and being taught to hate democracy and hate freedom. But there's actually, you know, there are a lot of Chinese diaspora people living here, uh, going to school here, and um, they're maybe even more under threat because they already understand the regime. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's exactly right. And many of these students, when they come to the U.S., there, there's actually this really telling example of a student at the University of Maryland named Yang Shuping, uh, who was actually the valedictorian and uh, gave a, an address at the university where uh, you know, she praised, quote, the fresh air of free speech. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she'd, she'd come to the U.S., she'd studied here, um, and she finally felt like she could express herself freely. And she was singled out by Chinese state media. Uh, forced to apologize. And in terms of the consequences she faced, which were very severe, um, that's actually really only the tip of the iceberg. Um, I think, you know, what's crucial to understand is that this isn't just social pressure these students face. Um, Although, you know, pressure from their fellow students is significant. um, There's also actually a very real physical danger. You mentioned the the very good example of of that that Berkeley student. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've talked to students who've been uh, assaulted um, by uh, by their fellow students uh, for uh, you know attending the wrong events uh, for criticizing the CCP. Uh, in some cases, students who've been threatened for speaking Cantonese instead of Mandarin mm-hmm. uh, because uh, you know it was believed that they weren't being uh, they they weren't sending the right message about China uh, you know to foreigners. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know th- there are tens if not hundreds of thousands of Chinese students who do not feel safe to speak publicly about the repression they face on their campuses um, because they are at risk of assault, because uh, their families, you know, even if they never plan on returning to China, their families who are back home uh, might be in danger. Um, and in fact, that source of leverage is one that we feel the Chinese government could use to force students in the U.S., uh, particularly those in research settings uh, to sort of act, uh, you know, in its favor. Um, so this is a real source of, of leverage when it comes not just to into free speech and expression. Uh, you know, our universities being the places that I, I think should be the leaders when it comes to free expression. Um, it's also a national security issue because students who are in labs uh, where they're conducting high tech research. Um, you know, to give one example. Um, because the Chinese government might have leverage over them, whether or not they come to the U.S., you know, choosing to, you know, to participate in espionage, it's something they can be roped into. Right. So let's talk about TikTok. Um, and let's talk about one of the last interviews I read that you gave. Um, you were talking about, it was from last year, late last year, and you were talking about your hopes for what Congress might do on some of these issues. Um, well, Congress has begun some of that work. So um, TikTok plays into that. There's obviously been a very high profile TikTok hearing. Um, and then there's also the House committee where they're investigating um, sort of, I think they're calling it Chinese competition, right? I think that's the official name of the of the House committee. Um, so first of all, if you could tell me what you think about TikTok. I have talked to so many young people where they don't really, I mean, it's it's you can't blame them for not really understanding what's going on with TikTok because we just heard out of the Biden White House that they're going to have TikTok influencers there possibly with their own press room. So it's a very confusing time for young people who are using this app. 
and wondering what, what's the big deal? Why does the government, why are they considering banning it? So I'd like your thoughts on that as it relates to sort of this exported surveillance state. And then also, um, I'd like to know what you're seeing from Congress, if you're hopeful about what you're seeing, if you think there's a way to ramp their work up, if you think it's going to go in different directions, just your general thoughts on on the moves that Congress has made. Sure. Uh, so, so TikTok is bad news. Um, and I think there is an understandable amount of cynicism among young people when it comes to big tech. Um, and when it comes to data privacy and data security. And that leads to this mistaken, but again, understandable view that, you know, well, TikTok may have all my personal data and, you know, that's not great, uh, but so does Facebook, so does Twitter, so does Instagram. Um, But TikTok is different, Um, not just by, you know, in in degree, but in kind. Uh, So TikTok, uh, you know, it's, it's, Frankly, it's it's a form of malware. I mean, the the extent to which TikTok can access uh, very personal information, including you know, keystrokes uh, logged on a personal device, is incredibly disturbing. Uh, and and I'm I'm heartened by the fact that uh, a number of state governments and, and even universities have begun begun to restrict TikTok from uh, from their devices. I think that's a real step in the right direction. Um, but it's not just an issue of, of data security. It's also a tool that the CCP absolutely sees as at its disposal when it comes to influencing the way people in this country, especially young people, think about itself. Um, and this is nothing new. Way back in 2020, uh, a TikTok executive admitted that the company had been censoring content that was critical of the Chinese government. Um, specifically when it came to to the genocide of Uyghurs. Um, so, you know, the, the, for, for years now, we've been getting these uh, very public warnings that this company is trying to shape public opinion in a way that is beneficial to the Chinese government. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm heartened, like I said, by the fact that policymakers are starting to wake up to this. Uh, we see part of our role here as reaching young people who, again, because they're cynical about big tech as a whole, they may not see TikTok as a unique problem, even though it is. Um, so uh, you know, the, the, the recent hearings where members of Congress from both parties uh, were, were very rightly critical of TikTok's uh, you know, CEO, uh, who really couldn't give a straight answer uh, when asked what kind of data uh, people in Beijing might have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that's an important step. Uh, and I think ultimately TikTok in its current form uh, is such a severe national security threat. And it's such a powerful tool for the CCP that it absolutely should not continue to operate as it is. So whether that means forced divestment, uh, you know, purchased by uh, a U.S.-based company or by you know, another company uh, that, that doesn't have, that, that isn't beholden to the CCP in the same way, that isn't required to abide by China's very unusual uh, data security and, and data access requirements, um, or you know, an outright ban. I, I think one of those things is necessary, and I think Congress, based on the signals we are seeing, is is moving in that direction. Um, but it's it's not moving as quickly as it needs to, especially given that for years now we've had these warnings. Right. And how do you, you know, as, as a, as someone who started a student run group and who's presumably still quite young, um, 
how do you convey this to young people who are like, but I like the app. I mean, even in the hearing, the, um, the TikTok CEO, was he the CEO? I think he was, um, you know, he even said, look, it's, it's just, it's dance videos and, you know, it's this, this isn't anything harmful. Um, and then of course we all know that TikTok as it's, as it's, presented here in the United States is, is actually not even available to Chinese young people. So there's something going on there. That's pretty telling. So how do you explain that to students on campus that, you know, without getting into the, the specifics of, you know, malware and, you know, it's tracking your keystrokes, which means it could have your password to your bank account and things like that. Um, how do you make young people understand that um, despite their cynicism, this data tracking by any of these uh, big tech groups isn't a good thing. Well, I think it's really important that that we meet students and, and young people generally, you know, on their level. I think it is vastly easier for a college student, particularly for you know, a student who's faced some of this repression on campus firsthand, to be the one who says to their fellow students, you know, look. As much as you like, you know, watching videos on TikTok, uh, some of which, you know, in and of themselves are fairly benign, uh, you know, as entertaining as it is, um, by using this product, you are giving a government that is operating the largest network of concentration camps since the Second World War uh, a leg up, uh, not just on the U.S. as, you know, it's a country, but on uh, you know, everyday people in this country who, uh, you know, just want to be able to exercise their rights. You know, I think when you when you approach it in those very personal terms, um, you know, and, and this is something I've seen firsthand with with some of the students we've talked about, especially Chinese nationals on U.S. college campuses who said to their fellow students, you know, look, I, I need you to understand that, that, that TikTok is not just like any other big tech app. It's actually demonstrably worse and it's putting a very dangerous weapon in the hands of a very powerful threat, uh, I, I think that moves the needle. Um, but first and foremost, it needs to be students and young people stalking, talking to other students and young people. I could not agree with you more. I think that's uh, such a um, profound, uh, profound truth. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people find the Athenai information? Are you on social media? What's your website address? Sure. Well, you can find us online. Uh, our address is very easy. It's athenai.org. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-I. Uh, and you can also find us on Twitter at uh, athenaiinst. Uh, and you can reach me on Twitter as well. That's John underscore L underscore Metz. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really, really, really fascinating conversation. I appreciate it. And as things progress, I hope you'll come back and join us uh, some other time. I'm certain this this uh, issue that you've that you've hit upon is not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and that's our show for today. So uh, we'll be back next week, as usual, with an all-new guest and an all-new subject. Um, please do find us wherever you find any of your podcasts and give us a five-star five star rating. Those really help us out. Um, and we'll talk with you soon.